hello listeners, uh, this is Jay Raj, your host for the Michigan Ross Executive Perspectives podcast. Welcome to the sixth episode of the series. The topic of today is sustainability. So it's no longer an alternative to consider sustainability as an option for a company to incorporate into their business model. No one can hide there have been some drastic measures recently that have been taken by governments and by corporations to combat global warming and the environmental crisis. And uh, really, sustainability has taken uh, steps even beyond that. So organizations and companies, they have played an essential part in this battle, and many companies are already setting examples. We have seen governments taking initiatives like Project Oxygen, which is a sustainable industrial city, which is part of NEOM in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is really paving the way for how sustainable city design and urban planning is being looked at. But the question for today is really how can companies successfully implement sustainable goals that correlate with their business model and objectives. This is where we want to build the bridge. For us to answer this, we have with us today Nabra Al-Busaidi, Community and Sustainability Manager at CAFU, uh, the leading fuel delivery app in the region. And we also have Thomas Line, Director of ERB Institute, and Terry Neldov, Managing Director of ERB Institute, uh, which is a partnership between Ross School of Business and the School of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. So again, welcome. Welcome to the esteemed guests and look forward for a, a lively discussion. Let me start with the basics, which is what is sustainability? Right now, I've heard different uh, definitions coming from different people. I just want to set uh, the stage of this conversation in terms of getting your definition of what sustainability really means. Uh, Thomas, I'd like to start with Terry, if uh, you can give me the first uh, look at it. Thank you, Jay. Um, well, the Herb Institute, as you mentioned, is a partnership that uh, Ross School of Business and the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. And our mission is to create a sustainable world through the power of business. And when we talk about sustainability, we have what we call a robust definition of sustainability. It does include climate change and other environmental issues such as water and biodiversity and circular economy, all really important. However, we go beyond just environmental risks and opportunities for business to consider a full range of uh, social, environmental, human rights and diversity issues that business has to face now. Uh, and so we think really broadly uh, about companies' contribution to society. And as one of our faculty members, Andy Hoffman, defined it in his book, uh, Flourishing, uh, he defines it even more broadly as the possibility that humans and other life will flourish on earth forever. And so this idea of flourishing, not just environmentally, but as our whole selves, uh, socially and in terms of human rights and diversity um, are also key aspects for sustainability for us as an institute. Great. Tom, uh, do you have different perspective? Do you want to add anything on top of that definition? Well, just a little alternative look at it. The most familiar definition of sustainability for most people is the Brundtland Commission definition, which talked about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future. And I think the thing that ties all of these themes together that Terry was mentioning is that there's an underlying ethical commitment to justice and concern for future generations. We treat them with the same concern and respect we treat today's generation. And within today's generation, we extend that same justice and respect to all people around the world, which is why 
human rights and access to healthcare, education, fundamental freedoms of speech and other types of freedom are so critical because it all feeds back into what Terry was talking about in terms of the ability of people and other life forms to flourish on this planet. Okay, excellent. So, uh, Nabra, let, let me ask you then from that perspective of the two perspectives of flourishing and the addition of, I would say addition, but the expansion into uh, human rights and social issues on top of what is typically seen as uh, sustainability in terms of global warming and environmental crises. So from that perspective, in terms of flourishing, we've been talking about sustainability for a while. We've seen companies now starting to implement sustainability. Why do you think this is happening now? And how do you tell it to the whole flourishing theme? So it's definitely becoming mainstream nor now. And I think this is obviously for several reasons. Uh, The message is clear on managing climate change and other ESG issues is now core to business value. So we see that governments alone can't solve our biggest problems such as climate change. You know, they need others in society to take collective action, of course. We see companies facing high expectations from their customers, communities, investors, employees to act responsibly and do much more. So most of the world's largest companies are now taking action to be more sustainable, more greener, including setting ambitious goals and publishing their annual sustainability report, for example. So I would say that major business leaders don't doubt that sustainability should, of course, be on the agenda. And companies are becoming much more ambitious. They're moving to bolder, systematic approaches that create a not net positive impact on the world. So a good example is, is PepsiCo. So they're aiming for enough regenerative farming to offset its whole agricultural footprint. Uh, and another reason for sustainability becoming more mainstream is, as Thomas said, it's down to the younger generation expecting more in this regard. Young millennials and the Gen Z are now entering the workforce today, and they're not afraid to speak out around their expectations for responsible business. Okay, excellent. So this would be a good segue then to Tom to ask you uh, specifically then, if that has become an agenda, a mainstream agenda, and for companies to implement, what would it benefit their organizations? What would it benefit their bottom line to become more sustainable? So how can we link this uh, agenda item of sustainability to company objectives and financials? Great question. The first thing I would point to is that sustainability generates a long-run orientation, which is consistent with producing better returns in the long run. We all know that a lot of business nowadays faces so many short-term pressures that businesses make decisions that favor short-term over long-term issues. So sustainability helps to resolve that and improve that perspective. Secondly, even in the short run, sustainability can also lower costs for businesses through eco-efficiency, a very familiar concept of reducing waste and keeping costs down. As Nabra was pointing out too, it helps to generate better relationships with stakeholders, maybe starting with employees, which are probably the most important stakeholder, but investors, customers, and the larger community in which a company operates. I think it's important to recognize though that sustainability doesn't always mean win-win easy outcomes. Sometimes sustainability is going to require investments that may be a bit of a challenge in the short run, but are going to generate a better planet for everyone in the longer run. Uh, How do we convince companies to make that investment for the long-term benefit when they are all looking towards the next quarter or the next year at the latest? 
Well, this is where those other stakeholders can be so important. Larry Fink is an interesting example. Every year he writes a letter to investors from the world's largest asset manager, which is BlackRock, and he's been encouraging them, encouraging CEOs to take that long-term perspective for a whole host of reasons. So increasingly investors, long-term investors are providing a counterweight to that short-term view. Okay, excellent. So basically it, it is going to require more of an ecosystem of players to make the collective effort of driving sustainability as a business practice. Terry, in this case, then for those companies that are starting to get on the uh, bandwagon, so what are the steps that they can actually take to become more sustainable as a business? That is the million dollar question. And for us as the Herb Institute, it's it's key to simplify this. This isn't rocket science. This isn't a mystery. This is just good business combined with a social, environmental, and human rights perspective. And so at the Herb Institute, we developed a series of what we call sustainability management toolboxes. Uh, and I can provide a link afterwards. They're all online and we, we can share them with the, the listeners. And each toolbox is no more than 10 pages focuses on one sustainability issue and starts with a checklist of how to get started. And as I said, it's not meant to be rocket science. Some of it's based on uh, scholarly research and theory. Some of it's based on just good business practice. But we synthesize each issue down into five steps to get going. And then we provide resources for additional information for a deeper dive and a couple of examples of how the issue plays out in real life. So. Of the, the, the theme that ties all of these 12 sustainability toolboxes together is our stakeholder-based view of the firm. So we believe that a company serves society. It has to serve not just shareholders, but a broad range of, of stakeholders, including employees, community, government, and nonprofits, as well as investors. And so the first toolbox, the first step is to understand those stakeholders. We call that our stakeholder engagement toolbox. And it's a simple process, five steps. Who are the stakeholders that the company interacts with from employees to community to uh, regulators and investors? Second, what are their key issues? On what are their expectations of the company? And then third, a simple process for prioritizing those stakeholder groups. A large company might have, when they do this exercise, 50 or 100 stakeholder groups. How do you focus on the three to five stakeholder groups that really matter? And so we do a stakeholder map to prioritize those. The second step is a similar process for issues. Again, a large transnational can have hundreds, even a thousand sustainability issues that are on its radar, but it can only focus on a small number, maybe five or 10 in a strategic approach. So the second toolbox is a materiality assessment. Materiality is a big word for a simple process of answering the question, what matters most to your company? Are they environmental issues that matter most, community issues, human rights risks and opportunities? Which ones are you going to focus on? And again, a simple process out of dozens of issues, you identify your company, which ones are you going to focus on? And then second, how did you cross those issues with the expectations of your stakeholders. Of all the issues, which ones are most important to your stakeholders and which ones are you going to prioritize? The third toolbox is a simple process for sustainability strategy. Strategy means prioritizing what to do, what to focus on, and even more important, what not to do. 
so out of the 100 issues, what are the three that you're going to build a sustainability strategy around? And that's based on your stakeholder expectations, business drivers within the company, and the most material, the most important issues. Focus on those. Then the fourth toolbox um, looks at global value chains. And as we know in large transnationals, it's no longer enough to focus on company operations and the headquarter in the headquarter country, but rather these are global value chains. And it's really difficult to see into value chains in distant countries, sometimes opaque value chains, to understand labor practices, environmental impact, human rights risks in those distant countries. So the fourth toolbox focuses on how do you take your priorities from your strategy and develop codes of conduct and implementation and reporting throughout complicated and often opaque global value chains. And then I would say the fifth step is on reporting and metrics. This is a key step that's often forgotten, but when you actually implement, set up metrics to capture impact not just outcomes of what you're doing, but real impact on the company, business drivers, and the local community, and then report back to the stakeholders that you started with on the, uh, the results of your sustainability strategy and your impact. So it creates a cycle, starting with stakeholder expectations, crossing with business drivers to identify the most important issues for both stakeholders and company, a strategic approach with a limited set of goals, implementation through complicated global value chains, and then close the circle by reporting back to those stakeholders, not just to report on what you did, but to use it as a platform for communication and dialogue, receive feedback, and improve your sustainability strategy for the next cycle. So that's one five-step approach just to get started. Honestly, this is an amazing change in terms of mindset from where we were as a capitalism-based society that where companies are focused mostly on uh, executives are focused on uh, generating revenue and maximizing shareholder value for investors. So that's been the main stakeholder. And now we're asking companies to change their mindsets and expand that stakeholder base. Whereas, as you mentioned, that the objectives and the KPIs have been measured in terms of financials over since and over the past 50 years, especially when, in, when the focus turned towards the investment uh, shareholder value. But the question to Nebra here is that in this case, with the company's financials being well-defined in terms of objective uh, measurement, how do we measure sustainability? How do you measure the goals and how do we make sure that it's reported back to the stakeholders and it's on track? That's an excellent question, Jay. So measuring sustainable outputs can be a bit complex, but of course, it's a necessity in order to show the progress that's being achieved. And for us to effectively manage sustainability and successful implementation, we need, of course, a set of strategies, targets and key performance indicators that can identify and define, but being, of course, relevant to the business and the goals that are being set. So it's important to develop these tools to measure progress and to help us you know, align the business in a, a more sustainable and future-proof way. So I can summarize it in a few key points. So firstly, 
we need to include realistic but stretching targets and objectives to be achieved for the business in terms of sustainability uh, ambitions. And the more clearly defined these are, the easier it will be to measure. The next stage is then to identify what KPIs should be developed and linked to each of these targets and objectives and what tools or processes are required to ensure progress is captured. And on reporting of progress, there needs to be regular points built into the business to update the senior team and the employees. And in terms of externally, it's important, of course, to build transparency to reflect what commitments the business has made and and the progress against this. Therefore, an annual external sustainability report is also very important. And it really demonstrates the way a business is limiting its impact on the environment and articulating the tangible actions being taken and really highlighting the progress it makes. So we know that this information is increasingly important and for a growing amount of stakeholders, such as the consumers who are more environmentally focused, investors, of course, partners, um, and other industry and key groups. And there are a range also of different frameworks that can be followed. So businesses can also align themselves with international and local organizations guided by the global reporting initiatives, the UN SDG, you know, e- other ESG-related frameworks and measure relevant progress in a very structured way. So at CAFU, what we're currently doing we, we are currently doing a range of work around our reporting and measurement processes for our sustainability commitment. And CAFU is also a UN SDG a global compact member. So what this has allowed us to do as well is build and create a solid sustainability strategy that not only aligns with, of course, the UN SDG goals, but other local and international sustainability guidelines. It's great to hear that a relatively new company like CAFU uh, that has made a great inroads into becoming the de facto usage for fuel delivery, among other things, to be taking such initiatives ahead of many other companies that have been established for a while. So no, I, I think it's great to hear that. So which takes us back, uh, Terry, one more time. I want to ask you then in this case, given that CAFU had had a fresh start uh, from the beginning to get into sustainability, what typically do you think the top mistakes that companies, whether they are legacy or new companies, make as they try to become sustainable? Yeah, well, Navra said it all. I I don't think uh, she's making mistakes. I think some of the other ones that we typically see as as companies start out on uh, in this process, I, I would highlight three. I think the first is making the business case for sustainability. So really making the business case for social environmental impact. This is not just a nice thing to do. These issues don't belong only in the company foundation or the company philanthropy department. That's fine if the company wants to give away money, fine if it wants to have positive impact on society through corporate social responsibility, nothing wrong with that. However, these issues like climate, uh, water strategy, community investment, global human rights, these are business issues and companies have to manage them as risks and opportunities. So the first mistake I think is that companies don't make the business case. They don't show the investments and the returns on responding to social and environmental risks and opportunities. And again, focus on the material issues, the ones that really matter to your company. If you're a mining company, for example, I worked a long time with mining companies in South America on community investment strategy. If you're a mining company, don't focus on uh, in giving money to the local museum or to a symphony, but focus on the issues that matter to you as a company and the community, issues like water, 
on issues like energy use. You know, mining is incredibly energy intensive. Preparing the local workforce for jobs at the mine. Those are the material issues. So the first one is business case. Second, I would say look beyond your own company. Um, look at what the impact you can have as, as a company. Then look to the industry level. How can you collaborate with other companies for shared impact in your industry? And then third, how can you even take that impact one level higher to the policy level? Uh, and so a second mistake is companies don't think big enough. They just think at their own company level without trying to influence the policy framework. And Tom may want to comment on this. Tom's done a lot of work on companies and sustainability policy. Um, one of his research pieces led to a new industry roundtable that we created at the Irv Institute called the Corporate Political Responsibility Task Force. And there we're helping companies answer that question. How do you align their their lobbying and their political influence and their policy advocacy, how do you align that with their public sustainability goals? So they're not saying one thing that they want to achieve with sustainability, but then behind the scenes lobbying for exactly the opposite, for uh, easier and more lax government policy. So I think that's the second mistake is think beyond your own company to the industry and the policy level. And then briefly, the third is don't forget your employees. Uh, employees, we often say, as we're at a university, we often say that employees, are the graduates of our business school, especially the Urban Institute that are focused on sustainability, they're not looking just for a job. They're looking for a purpose. And they're looking for a company that shares their purpose and their vision for impact. And so don't make the mistake of just focusing on strategy and implementation, but think about employee engagement. Employees want to be involved in issues like climate and community. Uh, and so create opportunities like uh, employee volunteering in the community or employee working groups internally or opportunities for employees to connect on policy issues beyond the company. So those three mistakes I would say are ones that we often hear. Tom, I don't know if you wanted to mention anything else on your background in policy and companies. Well, thanks, Jerry. And you said it all very well. I think another way to think about this is that there are a lot of companies that want to be more sustainable and they're swimming upstream against the incentives created by current public policy. And there's no better example than climate change. Carbon is still unpriced in most of the world. And so it's creating an implicit subsidy for the use of carbon intensive fuels that makes it just harder for companies that are trying to swim against that tide and move toward more renewable sources of energy because there's a bias in the underlying policy structure. And so if companies can help to create a level playing field that encourages companies to move toward renewable and sustainable approaches and makes that more profitable, that really accelerates and supercharges the movement towards sustainability. So I think that's why the point Terry was making is so important that companies that are really committed to sustainability need to help create the policy underpinnings that encourage that. Okay, excellent. So in this case then, Tom, how would you relate those three things, which is the building of the business case, the policy level, and the employee engagement? How many companies do you think in your mind are doing or, or announce sustainability as part of improving their image? And how can we shift that to become more in entrenched in their business practices across these three things or three mistakes that they are currently doing or actually not doing? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think we have a measure of how much of one thing or the other is happening. It's clear companies have a lot of great reasons to move toward a more sustainable footing. One of them is just to deal with climate risks, both on the adaptation side and what you could call the mitigation side. So as companies reinforce their facilities and prepare for more droughts, more heavy rains, more difficult weather situations, that's just good business. That's like buying insurance. In the same kind of way, companies that get off of a reliance on exhaustible resources are insuring themselves against risks. And the, the current brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia is a perfect example. It's caused a skyrocketing in the price of oil. And companies that are dependent on oil are now seeing their input costs go up enormously. So tech companies that have moved to a 100% reliance on renewable energy are insured against that. And so they're protected. That's just good business. That's good risk management. So there are lots of good, simple, straightforward business reasons that are driving companies to take these actions. And I think, um, Jay, your focus on employees and Terry's comment about employees is really apt because they are often the people that are calling for the company to be more sustainable. When we look at corporate involvement in political activities, it's often company employees that are really driving that and saying, we need to be out there moving the goalposts forward so that we're contributing to a more sustainable world. Now, at the same time, I think it's only fair to note that there is still a lot of greenwash going on. And in fact, we seem to be in a huge second wave of greenwashing right now that's associated with ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, and also with corporate net zero commitments. A lot of companies feel under pressure to make commitments that they're going to be climate free and they're going to be net zero by some date in the future. And it's often 2050. Well, that gives you 30 years. And it's very easy to say, we're going to have solved the problem in 30 years without laying out a clear timetable and a set of commitments and investments that will get us there. And in fact, if you add up all of the corporate net zero commitments, they're claiming to reforest the world many times over because they're all over claiming this ability to use reforestation as a carbon offset. So there is still a lot of public relations uh, activity going on. And this underlines that importance of transparency and good metrics and reporting, because that's the only way we can ensure that these activities are legitimate, authentic, and effective. Yeah, I mean, uh, what you said is totally true, which is now those big announcements we've heard and you hear them coming back to back. So it seems like one company hears another company in their same industry announcing by 2050, they're going to be zero emissions. They jump on board and say, oh, we will as well five years earlier, 2045. And then the, the, the whole ball starts rolling. And this is where we want to try and differentiate between the companies that are doing it just to check the box on, yes, we are doing something without any commitment to a timeline or a business case or a lobbying or any kind of activity that shows they're actually doing it. So hopefully, I mean, at the end, a combination of getting these metrics and KPIs and hearing more about sustainability reporting during earning calls, not just about the financials. So that can create a momentum. But you're right. I mean, at this point, we are at that stage where we want to get something more concrete from companies behind it. So never in this case, then given a lot of companies say, well, I don't have a lot of budgets. Uh, I don't have a lot of resources. I have a limited budget. So 
that will make it tend towards more towards a just a public image announcement rather than an, a concrete activity. So what do you think, given those limitations to some companies, what do you think they can do to actually start taking action in terms of uh, becoming more sustainable? So Jay, companies can start off by looking at their governance structure and really review how they run their business by looking through a sustainability lens, of course. They need to identify environmental impacts that are made, identifying policies and procedures and guidelines to really implement that look to reduce this impact. So this is exactly what we've done at CAFU since day one. So what we've done is where we've reviewed and reinvented some of our business practices. We have created our employee code of conduct, our supplier business conduct as well. And we've taken a look and a deep dive on our supplier chain processes, of course. And so, so, you know, as I mentioned, there's so many simple steps that can be taken, even from recycling waste or having a, you know, reduce, reuse policy right through to making changes to business practices from a higher level. And also re-looking at the governance model on how a business operates, identifying business leaders, functional-wise, of course, where they can integrate sustainable and, and best practices into the business. And of course, as Terry said a few minutes ago, it goes a long way when also engaging employees. So your employees are really your assets. They're your resources to, to, to making a big difference. So recently, for example, what we've done at Kafu for World Water Day is we went out to the mangrove conservation area. We planted a few mangroves. We learned about the importance of this tree and its importance in absorbing CO2, but also protecting coastal, coastal land. We also recently organized a cleanup for a Global Recycling Day uh, where employees and their families were asked to join uh, to clean up a beach where we did this with a, with a partnering company. And we collected over 700 kilograms of trash and plastic waste. So, you know, employees want to be involved. They also want to make a difference and, and they want to be, a, a, you know, part of a company that leaves a positive mark for future generations to come. So I believe as a start, you know, your employees as well are, are, are your assets and resources to making a difference. I think then uh, in this case, I think the two points uh, really that uh, we touched upon, the business case is very clear and we talked about it at the beginning. The two main, uh, the two other points, which is the policy setting and the standards and the employee engagement, I think are two new concepts that most people, when they talk sustainability, they don't really think about because they think either from a corporate image or from a business case, but from policy and employee engagement, I think they still doubt like, can you actually have sustainability retain employees? Is it an attractive value proposition from a company to hire people who are interested in the company that engages in sustainability? And the other one in terms of policy, how can we get those companies engaged just like with the employee side, engaged on the industry level side with the regulators and the government? So I'll open that question to the three of you. If you can touch on either one of these points or both points and just give me your final, I think because we're running out of time, unfortunately, uh, your final two-minute thoughts about sustainability. So let me start with Terry. In answer to the question, does sustainability help with employee uh, recruitment and retention? Absolutely, yes. I'm saying that from a university environment. We work with undergraduate students, graduate students, and executives and business leaders through Ross Executive Education. And I'll mention just one example of how that plays out. We partner with Ross Executive Education on what we call Sustainability Academy, where we actually work with companies on these social and environmental issues, 
developing business strategies, developing metrics and reporting, um, developing implementation plans for sustainability, and developing employee engagement. And so one sustainability academy we did with Dow, Dow Chemical, um, and we worked with them for three years in partnership with Ross ExecEd, and we developed a program where they, Dow brought rising business leaders, junior business leaders within the company, self-identified as interested in sustainability, brought them together in teams of uh, four and five people per team, and then every six months, brought about 15 of these teams down to University of Michigan for a one-week crash course on social, environmental, human rights, and diversity issues here at, at Ross Business School. And by day, they were in class in exec ed, and by night, they were working on each team on an individual project to contribute to Dow's 2025 sustainability goals. They completed at the end of the week, made presentations to senior leadership at Dow on what they were going to do for the next six months on their teams to implement their goals. Then they went back and worked at, uh, at the company for the next six months, actually doing the work and putting into practice what they learned in the program with us. And then they reported out and handed off the projects to the next set of teams. And six months later, 15 new teams came down to University of Michigan. We did a crash course on sustainability and they went back to work again on their company projects. So for us, that's really one um, really successful example of how we partnered with the company to really engage employees, not just on learning, but actually implementing what they learned uh, in support of the company's sustainability goals. If I could just build on that, it's really clear at this point that academic research strongly supports the notion that sustainability helps you attract and retain employees. Uh, there have been surveys for years done of graduating MBAs, and are they willing to take a lower salary in order to work for a company that they believe has a mission, is pursuing a sustainability objective, is making the world a better place? And it's just been consistent for over a decade that the answer is yes, very, very widely across all MBA graduates. But there are increasingly randomized control trial experiments, too, with a little more legitimacy than surveys of MBA grads. And they show the same thing. So employees really are key. And I think, as Terry was pointing out, if you train your employees, they're going to be the ones that are out there identifying opportunities to make improvements to lower costs to develop new innovations. And so a great starting place for any company is education. If you don't have a chief sustainability officer, appoint one. If you can't afford to hire a new one, train someone within the company and then have them roll out that kind of education broadly and internally. Because that way you're building a culture that supports it, that identifies opportunities to move forward. And I think that's really a perfect place to start. It's very consistent with what uh, Nabra was saying as well. Very well said. So Nabra, your thoughts on that? Uh, so on employee retention, engaging employees with sustainable uh, development projects and initiatives positively impacts people, of course, increasing their happiness, especially in an office or, or work environment. So this allows us to promote uh, a great culture 
as well within the teams. And I think this is very important to emphasize. And over time, this results in lower employee attrition rates and really supports to build a great place to work. So being sustainable is important when it comes to attracting new talent as well. So nearly 40% of millennials globally have taken a job because of the company's sustainability strategy, agenda, and initiatives. And according to some reports, some are also willing to go as far as taking a pay cut to work at an environmentally responsible company. And according to a PwC report, by 2025, millennials will account for approximately 75% of the overall workforce. They're really excited by the prospects of working for companies that play a positive role within society. And this report also discovered that 65% of people in China, Germany, UK, India, and US really want to work for a company with a strong social conscience. So a company showing commitment to sustainability, having a social conscience, and taking an active role in the community will more certainly help to attract talent as well as contribute to retaining it. Great. So, Navra, um, I'd like to thank you from Kafu for coming in. Dom Terry from the Herb Institute for this lively and very informative discussion. Hopefully, it will make a small difference, at least in the short term, driving for much bigger change. And after that, thanks for the listeners for tuning in. And we look forward for the next uh, episode of the Michigan Ross Executive Perspectives. Mm-hmm.